0: Hi and welcome back to Realistic Sustainability. I'm Mike and I am here with Nick. I'm tired. I met Nick. Hi, I'm Nick. (laughs) You're tired, huh? I I am. Seems to be a common theme that we have for show after
1: show. Well, it's those darned mornings, man. I'm telling you, I actually think it was a little better off when they were like midnight one in the morning because give a quick red down in my morning. I, I went to bed last night, technically this morning, got up again like at like 8 50 i was supposed to be in clio at nine so I was like oh god so i get dressed and i i get halfway to clio for the person i was supposed to meet at nine to tell me that they're they have to push the meeting back because they're they're running late and they have a migraine i was like well it's like it's my my food reps I was like i'll just send I'll just text you the order and if you have any problems you can message me back so then i came home and i'm like oh i'm so sleepy then you get a message from me saying i'm ready yeah so i went i ran to the gas station eat a cup of coffee and then yeah i got your message and like, i guess i better go
0: home and be productive get my day started i am also using coffee to keep me moving nice so before we start the show i just want to express my excitement i was able to go quote unquote shopping through durand just recently and brought home a full size like reusable grocery bag full of greens i it wasn't i mean peppers aren't ready a lot of the root plants aren't ready The tomatoes aren't ready yet, but just in heads of lettuce, Swiss chard, green beans, cucumbers, it was quite literally a full bag. It had to have been five or six pounds. That's awesome. Sounds delicious. So for those of you listening who haven't heard my constant rambles about the Edible Landscape Project, we have here in Duran, Michigan, wherever there's flowers or landscaping, we've added food. So throughout the whole city, there's multiple gardens, there's mixed gardens along with flowers, and it's all free to the public. Not free to the residents, free to the public. Anybody that comes to Duran, stops in, can pick what they would like to pick. It is just a program that we decided to create to help more people walk up and down the streets of Durand, and it has been so much fun this year. We've doubled the amount of size of gardens. And last year we did about three or 400 pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables. We planted 11 fruit trees. This year we've added some raspberries and some spots that we're trying to block off from people getting into. That's my way of creating gates. And we've added full-scale gardens. So this year the goal is somewhere around 1,000 pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables. And I think we can do that just in zucchini and watermelon. That's well. I mean, in
1: watermelon, it's kind of like <laughs> those are pretty big. So I think you're cheating, but that is pretty awesome. It really is. That is super cool, and I'm so happy. I've been watching the updates with Jeff and you guys on Facebook. It's been wonderful.
0: Well, and Jeff is great about going around, getting all the photos, and and reminding people come get it. I'm starting to do little videos to hopefully hit a whole different demographic, so people will start coming to Duran and getting the free food. At this point, we don't want this like the green starting to seed. We want it to be able to be cut and eaten while it's still fresh and delicious. And if it gets to the point where it's starting to get too old, we got to cut it and donate it. But if if we do that, that's saying that there is no need, and I know there is.
1: Well, I, I noticed, um, and I'm sure you've seen it, too. You had a comment on one of your videos yesterday. The lady, I think it was yesterday, a lady said, uh, thanks for the. this is a cool reminder or whatever. And she told, said she sat by the people spot on the way home to, to get some. So I thought that was really cool. She, she got some greens
0: and stuff for a salad. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, this should be about the time of year we people start taking pictures of their plates, you know, all the stuff they've gotten from downtown. And that's exciting to me. I take all that, put it on the website. It's just a fun event. And now that this stuff is starting to mature, this is where the fun really kind of kicks in. I
1: think so. And I think, I, I really hope you guys start getting some really cool looking food pictures. Like I made this with this because <laughs> I I like to live vicariously through people's kitchens, So it makes me happy.
0: Yeah, so I just wanted to bring it up. If you're in the area, stop by Duran and feel free. Pick yourself some lettuce, some Swiss chard, cucumbers, whatever you want. There's almost 60 tomato plants in town. There's just as many pepper plants in town. As these things mature, have at it. And for those of you who feel like you have to pay something, you don't. But if you feel like you have to do something, then pull a weed. Trim a plant. Do something that helps out, and the community will be giving you two thumbs up. We don't mind if you take it. Uh, Matter of fact, if you're at the smokehouse having dinner, they'll give you bags to go out and start collecting your own food. That's awesome. Yep. So uh, we have a little bit of a parlay because we're talking about these vegetables into the show. But this week I want to talk about the bee industry and specifically the honeybee industry. Because I think there's a lot of things that we know just inherently about honeybees. But after watching several more documentaries... uh, Matter of fact, Amazon has a series out there now talking about different sustainability factors. And one of them was this bee industry that got me thinking again about um, how we do our farming Mm -hmm. and, and how this bee industry works. Because, yes, we have bee industries where they make all the things where they make honey. We know that. There's thousands of products out there that require honey. And that is one bee industry. Another one is people sell queens. They breed queens and sell queens to some of these larger hive or beekeeping companies. So there's a lot of different kinds of industry. The one I want to focus on is that beekeeping one. And I mean the commercial beekeeping, not like our friends who have three or four hives in their backyard, but these people who load up semis with 100,000 hives and take them places. That's where I want to focus.
1: All right, that sounds good. So I'm not overly familiar with with that. I have a little familiarity with with different types of industries where they do they breed and I guess I'd say create but really just grow insects for scientific research. I didn't realize that the commercial bee industry was that extensive. I'm sure I mean I knew it existed, but I guess I didn't realize all the purposes they'd have, which like I, that's a good thing. I mean I can I know that I can go online and order bumblebees by mail if I want to
0: yeah and this is a massive version of that um so it i kind of excited that you hadn't heard of this because this is going to be a fun conversation then most people love honeybees we've learned to love honeybees they are not the normal bee they're not a wasp I joke about petting the bumbles but i would love to do the same with the honeys mm-hmm. they're community driven they function in a pseudo-democracy they do that waggle communication To be and once the hive agrees with this specific movement of what Mm -hmm. the next decision is, they go do it. So they are a a community-based creature, which makes it kind of cooler. You know, whenever we see that kind of communication, we draw it as a like a linear example of how humans work, except for they all agreed. So they waggle to consensus, the ability to produce honey. We know all those things. But did we know, I think we kind of knew, but did you know that 80% of all flowering plants are pollinated by honeybees? Not all pollinated uh, pollinators, but honeybees specifically do almost 80% of all flowering plants and over 130 types of fruits and vegetables.
1: Yeah. So I did know that because I mean, to be fair, fruits and vegetables are flowering plants. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's the blossom has to be pollinated before it'll turn into fruit. Um, but I did know that, and that's part of the reason people always say that if the honeybees go extinct, we're doomed, is because we don't we don't protect, we don't currently have a technology that would replace that p- effectively, not not in the the degree you know the scale that we would need it to 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 not see a ripple in our day to day lives. And I think that when it comes to like bees. I think they're adorable. I love honeybees, but that's just me. I like the bumbles too, because you can pet them. But but yeah, no,
0: I didn't know that, Mike. Well, there's, so the way we do food industry, and I'm going to use California right now as an example with almonds. There is massive, like thousands of acres of almond trees. And they flower over a very specific point during the season. And when that flower is gone, there's nothing left for pollinators to eat. It doesn't matter if it's fields and fields as far as the eye can see of corn. It doesn't matter if it is soybeans or green beans. We tend to put one product in massive amounts of area. That's that's considered that's called a monoculture. There's one thing growing as far as the eye can see.
1: Yeah, which is part of the reason this country like works is because we do that in so many different areas. Each area
0: produces something different. Right. The problem with that is is that plants plants tend to have a season in which they need to be pollinated. And once that is done, all of that disappears. You move to the product. So mm-hmm. any insect or animal that feeds off of pollen or is, you know, used for that purpose only has food in that multiple square mile area for that small period of time. It becomes a food desert once the pollination period is over. And then all of the insects that function in that way either have to move or they die. So that is one problem that we have in this country. Our, our acreage for single product monocultures is too large. Nature has a hard time dealing with it. And because of that, We have to adapt. Instead of adapting the correct way, which is mixing—I mean, a simple strip of clover down—you know, every every half acre would solve that problem. But we don't do that. We look at that half acre as that that strip down that half acre is more money. We got to grow the same thing. So there's that issue to our pollinators. There's also pesticides and herbicides. Sometimes they we don't necessarily know if they're going to affect our pollinators until it affects the pollinators. And because of our industry and the lack of pollinators and the lack of nutrient in the ground, we're constantly spraying our food. Yeah, absolutely. So there's an industry out there where a farmer, and this is, I'm gonna use the almond one as the example, contacts a uh, beekeeper. And that beekeeper will load anywhere between 50 and 100,000 hives onto a semi and drive them to their farm and start putting four hives per acre across their whole farm just before the pollinating season. They pay anywhere between 150 to $200 a hive. And those bees will sit there through the whole pollination season. And as soon as that pollination season is over and that starts to become a food desert, they pack up all their hives, they put them back onto the semi and they drive to a cherry farm or an apple farm or whoever needs them next wow so the vast majority of the bee population in the united states and i mean this vast majority like we're talking 80 percent of all the bees in the united states are commercial bees being shipped from region to region to region that's it's, that's insane i mean so like
1: I know that the the orchard here, I know they have beehives. I don't think they own them. I think that they allow people to keep them on their property. And then they, uh, because the people produce honey, so they sell honey. So they, they leave the bees here, the bees take care of the orchard, and then they come and collect the honey.
0: Mm-hmm. In the smaller groups, you have partnerships like that. But in these massive corporations, it's like corporation of bees taking care of corporation of almonds. That's insane. So you have millions of bees being trucked from region to region to region. And it used to be, I think it was 2005 and before, you would always lose 5, 10, 15% of your bees. Either through age, uh, you know, some got into something they shouldn't got into, you know, you left them when you collected the hives and drove away, whatever it happens to be. Starting in 2006, they started to see a trend. As of today, almost 44% of every bee transferred dies before it gets back on that truck
1: really so they lose a half hive every time
0: they lose a half of their whole haul
1: yeah so if All there right, is a
0: yeah. hundred thousand hives you in a sense are going to have just over half of them back is 56 56 yeah is that due to, 56, 000, you know, that due to pesticides sometimes they can tell if it has to do with pesticides or or insecticides because they the bees will come back to the hive They start to get sick and and much like a community, those bees in the hive will kick them out. They will push them out the front of the hive. They die at the base of the hive. So you end up with this huge pile of honeybees at the base of the hive by the end of that growing cycle or the end of that pollination cycle. Oh, that's terrible. So that's where you're starting to see the concern because in nature, honeybee populations are still growing. But I think some of that has to do with people like us. We like to put pollinate you know, pollinating flowers everywhere. We like to support pollinators. Mm-hmm. Durand, having flowers was great. Having flowers and food is better. We have a very large variety throughout the whole city, so bees can exist around here. In the larger and larger and larger swaths of areas, bees can exist, either through massive farming or concrete covered cities even if you put beehives on the roof of buildings you still need pollen you still need food for them and if it is concrete as far as the eye can see you can have as many hives as you want they're gonna they're going to pass but what, but some cities are starting to do the flowers to make it easier for pollination so natural bees are doing well it's these massive amounts of commercial bees that are not
1: well i mean I understand that, but could some, could it have something to do with the fact that their home is constantly on the move? Does that not affect them at all, that they're being transported in a shaky truck?
0: Yeah, I think that there is some some validity in that. And I think that was part of that 5 to 15% loss that they had going through the 60s all the way up through the mid-2000s. You would always have some losses. You would leave some behind. You would have just general disease maybe maybe you lose a whole hive because one ended up with a disease that transferred to rest or mites or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. What we're seeing now is that is grossly inflated. You're seeing chemical poisoning. You're seeing much more disease. And because we're taking, you know, if this happens in nature, you have one hive on one tree. And if a disease comes into that hive and they lose that hive, you lose one hive. But if you have, 100,000 hives within reach of each other and that 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 one bee gets a disease and spreads it to another one and spreads it to another one you lose massive amounts of bees because this huge collection is in one place.
1: Mhm. No no, I agree with that and I, I just think it's um I think it's it's borderline because I'm I'm really ignorant to it, and this is mostly new for me, so I don't understand a lot of the specifics of it. But I think it's really really odd that like they they get sick like that when they don't necessarily get sick that often in nature. I'm sure they do, you know. I'm sure it happens, but if it happened in in a scale like that naturally, then we wouldn't have honeybees. So I just think it's
0: odd. Well, and honeybees actually have an amazing immune system, so they ha- they can fight off much much more disease than many other creatures. They're actually a very durable species. Okay. They do have some issues with uh there's these little mites that will attach to them and slowly draw from them until they die. There are some things like that like like all animals in nature. That is an outside source, but their internal immune system is quite strong. But what they're finding is is that when because we have to have these pollinators at these spots at these times, we, are, we have to truck them in now, because we haven't designed the farm so that it could be so it could be useful year-round. <laughs> you know It's not conducive to life because you only have a small sliver of time where life can even live there. Mm-hmm. So because we won't change our farming tactics, we have to do this. And in the process of doing this, we are spreading disease amongst honeybees probably four times faster than we ever have.
1: Okay. And I don't know where to start on that. What about areas that, okay, this is me going to be ignorant again. Are there areas in the United States that have flowering plants all year round that, that it's always,
0: you know, conducive to honeybees? Yeah. Down South for us, we would call it down South, but in more temperate climates, you have different plants that kind of pop up at different times. Now, obviously honeybees have resting periods and all that kind of stuff, but Down in those warmer climates, there's always something, you know, even a house plant flowers, my spider plant flowers, you know, so as these plants grow, they um, will always offer something. And that's where we see a big problem, especially in the north, where there just isn't the food. And the more space we take with the monocropping systems, or the more space we take with monocropping, the less places they have to eat. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: that makes sense. I was just curious. Um, because, you know, with the monocropping, it it doesn't seem like it'd be that big of a deal until you realize how many items in this country are produced like that. And like in, with the Midwest, this time of year, it's corn everywhere. You see corn all over the place. We don't have any huge farming operations where I live. I mean, we have like one farm, but all the surrounding area on like M thirteen and some areas M fifty seven. It's all just farmland. You know they rent it out to whoever rents them. Well, most of it's just corn. That's all you see. And then no corn necessarily flowers.
0: Right. So you, you that to them that is a massive area of no food. That is a food desert. Even though it's food for us, it's a food desert.
1: Well, that's not happiness.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, okay. Now, we've done our complaining. We've discussed the issue. There is a resolution. There is a way to honestly and easily fix this. And that is having complementary plants on site where we farm. Just like I talked about, if you have an acre of corn, having strips of clover, mm-hmm. you know, having multiple, have a strip of wildflowers. It's, it really is easy. It's our ego telling us not to do it. Because we need every square inch, they talk about every square inch of that property being profitable, but it won't be if it's never pollinated. You're going to be out there with Q-tips trying to pollinate every single flower you see if we don't make changes. Because losing 40, 45% of your hives every year, yes, you have new bees being birthed, but that's too high. That is not sustainable. Over time, disease will... R- what happens when bees get a disease that they just can't manage and that, that excellent immune system that they've developed over hundreds of thousands of years or more doesn't work and it kills a 100,000 hives in one spot? There is a way to deal with that and that is by moving away from monoculturing and changing how we use the land. There's nothing wrong with an an a almond company sharing space with other farms to be able to have a rotating crop to be able to have clover where you're going to walk anyways you know it doesn't need to be a road it's probably a two-track through there anyways instead of having just yard grass cover it with clover cover it with wildflowers it isn't going to hurt no no it won't hurt and to be honest i
1: think that for me One of my favorite things to see randomly throughout, like, you know, down ditches and sides of roads are, like, wildflowers. I think they're gorgeous. Granted, I don't spend a lot of time in, you know, fields and and, uh, where crops are being grown, but I like to see that kind of stuff, but I also think it's, you know, makes the area a little more beautiful. And I think that that's part of uh, what makes you enjoy the outdoors. I mean, I love being outside, but when you see those pinks and purples and oranges and blues and reds and just these gorgeous colors from flowers kind of makes you stop and go, (laughs) Oh, well, I'm serious. Like it's, it's one thing to look at like this big open space and see the rolling Hills and, and that's wonderful. But when you stop and you look over and you see like an Indian paintbrush and there's, you know a bee sitting on there if you see you know a couple uh like, like, like a wild fruit bush like wild raspberries or something they're starting to flower i mean it's just it's just pretty
0: yeah we were talking about getting with the with mdot the michigan department of transportation because here in duran we have an expressway entrance and exit to mm-hmm. ask if we can just seed all of that grass with wildflowers so our exit would year over year, more and more wildflowers would grow in that space. Mm-hmm. And part of the conversation is, then you don't have to mow it. We're going to ask you, don't mow it. As long as the wildflowers take over and the grass starts to kind of slowly disappear, how cool would it be that, you, that our exit is just that, mixed wildflowers, as far as the eye can see up the hills over to the overpass?
1: I think it's a good idea, and I think it'd be pretty. And I'm sure there'll be some naysayer that complains about the bees, but... Sometimes people
0: just look for reasons to be upset. They complained about the bees when we put the food in town, but we're putting them next to flowers. It literally was no different. The only difference is that flower stays open much longer than my vegetable. But uh, we have not gotten approval yet from MDOT to start that project because we would just take basically seed bombs and just start firing them everywhere. Every year we'd buy a whole bunch more and just keep doing it until it was self-sufficient. I also, and I will not name names, but a friend of ours who joins, uh, who has joined the Green in Your Life Facebook, they keep little bags of seeds in their car. And when they're out and about, when they see drainage ditches that are moving with water, Mm -hmm. they just start throwing seeds in there. So that's awesome. (laughs) So down the line, as these seeds happen to stop at whatever point, wherever it is in nature, they'll have wildflowers starting there. And when, when one or two wildflowers start, then many will follow. That's,
1: yeah, I mean, that's wonderful. I think it's kind of cute, though. You have like a little seed sniper, like a cow, cow.
0: But all it does is add more flowers. And face it, not only is it food for pollinators, it's beautiful. Having uh, yeah. flowers is way better than grass. It's pretty. I will be constantly working and pushing to end the mandate here in the city of Duran that you have to have a lawn because so, right now you do have to have a lawn.
1: So, like, I yeah, I have issues with that. Um, uh, not you ending it, but I, I, this is you can just say this is out of pure laziness. Like, having a lawn is fine, but like, when you mandate the people have to keep it mowed. Or like you're one of those neighbors where as soon as their neighbor mows your lawn, you've gotta be you've gotta mow it too. You gotta like it's like a competition who can have it the freshest, the longest. It looks like it's great to take pride in your in your house and, and in your property. Like I, I support taking pride in what you own, but my God, grass sucks. Mm-hmm. Like like right here in our yard, it's like because they have had no rain, it's all brown. I have an entire brown yard.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's because it's not a native grass that can't manage our climate. So half the season, you have to water it if you'd like it to be green. That is one of the factors about the grass, and especially Michigan, none of this grass that we have is native. Our grass that is native to Michigan is very tall and very straw-like. That is a native Michigan grass. When you go to was it the Sleeping Bear Dunes and you see these patches of tall, what looks to be dry, dead grass, that is a Michigan grass. This green stuff? Not a Michigan grass. Never has been. It was trucked in and mandated over time. It was some snake oil salesman changed changed the ecosystem because he wanted to sell some green
1: snake oil salesman.
0: <laughs> yeah, because we had native grasses here. We had we're lucky in Duran. We have a native a, a native plant uh, store here in town. Or really? Where it is just actually near my house. It's someone's home. They have a greenhouse, and they only work with native uh, plants. And I think that it's about time that we start changing some of that. And since Durand is starting to do some of these first, starting to you know with for, with the first edible landscape project, city driven in the United States, maybe it's time we get get rid of grass. And now for me, I have a an idea that. I'm probably starting next spring. I'm just going to buy a bag of clover seed and I may not get rid of my grass, but if I lay a massive bag of clover seed across my ground, it won't take long before it's just clovers and clovers grow wildly. So, you know, maybe it wasn't me.
1: Yeah. Accidents
0: happen all the time. <laughs> so it will, I mean, to me, I would much ha- much rather have a beautiful clover field in my yard where the bunnies can come over and snack, and they'll stay out of your garden because your whole yard is a snack, and that bees can experience it. It will be a living ecosystem instead of, yet again, another small monoculture that requires chemicals to be exactly how you want them. And I won't have to cut it. If the grass starts to go away, clover only grows so tall. We're all done with maintenance.
1: I support that 100% support that idea. Actually, I was when you, you said you were going to do a thing, I, I thought a little more aggressively. I thought you buy, you should buy one of those confetti cannons and just fill it with seeds and just fire them at random places. <laughs> like, bang.
0: But we always joke when we can't get permission to plant things like grapes on a fence line or this or that, that, hey, man, sometimes birds transfer seeds for you. I can't guarantee there won't be grapes on that fence.
1: That's hilarious. And yes, accidents do happen all the
0: time. You know, sometimes nature will find a way to quote Jurassic Park. Yeah. Yep. Each and every time. And that is how we end up with a second generation Sunzilla growing in my garden with the massive sunflower. If any of you guys are following Green in Your Life. Yes. Sunzilla. Uh, <laughs> the, the Facebook page. You're seeing Sunzilla. I'm doing kind of weekly videos talking about this massive sunflower that yet Jamie has in my back. Again, I say it's her fault cause she's the one who grows sunflowers on our property. And, uh, last year, if you guys remember, we ended up with this huge sunflower. We used it as a photo with Jamie and uh, used it was different green in your life for a long time. Well, it had lots and lots and lots of babies. We've moved most of the babies to friends houses down our fence line in our front yard, but I left the one that was growing in the same spot. And it has yet again become another sunzilla. Yeah, it's huge. And I just today took some pictures and videos because it has. I just uploaded another one that had. It has about six or seven heads already at the top, which means this is going to be another one of those big sunflower tree bushes.
1: So, is that like is that normal? I mean, I don't know jack about sunflowers. I've I've never really. And I tried to Google sunflower trees, thinking like this was a thing, but all the pictures I found about these massive sunflowers we're totally different genus than what you have so i don't know a thing about it i just know that it's because it's got a stalk like a damn tree excuse my language
0: it's thick. yeah it's huge i couldn't even wood chip it to use it as material i had to dig a hole and lay it in the hole because i couldn't break it down it's it's eight inches in diameter about diameter it's a large large trunk no and it, eight eight inches in circumference circumference sorry and it is just massive and it has, it has to hold a lot of weight as as you saw from one of the recent videos some of the lower stuff is breaking off under its own weight it's so large so my next
1: question would be because i actually don't know the answer to this your your raised garden beds is there a bottom to them before you get to your actual ground or is it just just walls where you allows you to put in more dirt
0: just walls i don't do i don't close the bottom so it does grow
1: straight down cuz i was trying to figure out how you know a garden bed that's maybe a foot deep could sustain something so tall but if it can grow straight down and develop a root structure into your ground then like that's that's amazing you know what it reminds me of oh my god do you remember turtles Two: secret of the ooze or whatever or whatever it was called <laughs> where they break off those massive sunflowers so they find them in a
0: drainage ditch uh no no i don't think i ever saw the second are turtle. you serious michael come on no no this is not a this is not a me moment well, this is, a, I'm going to Google it and send it to you in a moment. <laughs> you better. But on the bright side, we will have pollinator heaven with that thing. Because last year we probably had 30 bumbles and 30 honeybees that just kind of lived in that large. And I was so happy to have it. Yeah, of course. But also remember uh, when you were talking about the root balls, because they have root balls, not like what you expect from trees that come out. They have a root ball. So the last time we tore down the last sunflower, it had a root ball about the size of my chest. So you took the last one out and this one still grew there? Um, Probably 60 of them grew there. We've just gave away a whole bunch and planted a bunch in the front yard. Cause all the seeds, when birds are eating the seeds, they fall. Yeah. So it seeded my whole freaking garden. I just happened to leave that one that happened to grow in the same spot. And then I, and if you saw in the last video, I, I also left two other naturally growing ones directly next to it. So you can see the difference between those growing normal and this one growing abnormal, which well, means I, I think... can't harvest seeds and sell them because they grow normal, except for in this spot. That is kind of weird. I don't understand... So, anyways, we've gotten way off the topic. Although I do like talking about my sunflowers and the occasional visitors of bumbles.
1: Okay, I uh, just sent you the clip. Oh god. Okay, I, I was wrong. They weren't sunflowers; they're dandelions, but they're like the size of a frisbee. So you'll see it. <laughs> okay,
0: I will take a look right after the show. So when we, it's very important for most of us to plant in a fashion that caters to our pollinators but we also do that because that's less we buy from these monocultures. If everybody listening to this show got most of their fruits and vegetables locally, they got them from you know local farmers with smaller plots or people like myself who grow far too much or or even fruits and vegetables that I don't even eat where I, I, I end up with an abundance of tomatoes and zucchini and I put it in the share uh, stand, get your, fruits and vegetables from those kinds of places. Because the less we buy from these larger corporations, the less land they need to produce. And I know for a while, they'll just get subsidized. But over time, that will change. We have to get our food from sustainable sources as much as humanly possible. And for those of you who have luxuriously wonderful gardens, I'm sure you know, you can can things to have it for the winter. I have learned to blanch and flash freeze, green beans and sweet peas. So we have them all year long. Do those things because then we don't necessarily, even if you have to go to the store and buy one or two things, you're not buying it every single time. Remember in the US we waste 40% of all food produced. So not only do we have these massive monocultures of starvation for our nature, but we don't even eat it. We waste it. So if we focus on regional eating, And I know that means no pineapple. You'll still go to the store and get the pineapple. But the things that we can get here, we should in your region. That over time will help change the mentality of how corporations work. If they spend too much and get too little back, they will stop spending that much. They will change to cater.
1: Well, I mean, I agree with that. And and for me, I, I like what you were talking about. Like when you have, when you grow too many vegetables, you put them in your little share stand. I think life could be a lot simpler if, if you know more people just kind of had little micro gardens at home and they're like, hey, I'm going to plant zucchini this year. And they have, you know, let's say they, they get 30 of them and only need a few, they give them to their neighbors. And if more people did that, um, it'd be really kind of cool to see kind of like a community growth chart where people could sign up to plant certain things and say, I'm going to do tomatoes this year and I'm going to do bell peppers. I'm going to do this. And that throughout the community, different people could help supply different items. And so they wouldn't have a need to go to the grocery store and spend all that money. if they're all just doing a little bit here and there. And And I don't mean put in like a full fledged garden, literally to plant like peppers or tomatoes, you really just need about what, eight to 10 inches of dirt and, you, I mean, you could put a garden in if you want a huge yield, or like like what I, I actually prefer and I like because it's with certain types of fruits and vegetables, you don't want to plant them all at one time, anyways, because then they're all ripe at one time, or at least most of them. And so you have way too big of a yield. You're not going to use it all. And then it goes towards that food waste statistic. You would plant them a few days apart, maybe a week apart, and you would just take, you know, like take a. One of those I'd like the cages personally, but to till up a little bit of dirt, let's say in the middle of your yard, pick a spot it gets good sun, boom. You know, put your tomato plant right there, put your cage around it, and then move on. You have to make sure you get deep enough so you go past the grassroots, so it's not fighting for you know, ground and whatnot. But like it it, it would be kind of cool, you know. You have random little flowering plants throughout your yard, and then a few weeks later you got delicious fruits and vegetables. I like that idea.
0: Well, and we're even bypassing the obligation of drawing straws to see who's gonna grow what? Now the city grows it all. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: people who want to help tend it do. The people who need to pick it or want to pick it do. And we just function in that way. So every time I go out to pick, I clean a little area. Every time I go to pick something or cut a head of lettuce, I pull all the weeds around it kind of thing. And so does most of the community. If the city grows food in those spaces, that is less that we have to pull from those corporate uh, environments.
1: Absolutely. And we all know how I like commercial agriculture. I don't. So, part of me, like I said, I've always been torn. Part of me, it's my food and I want it now. And there are certain things I love that you could just go buy and get, even though you have no reason or right to have an avocado in the middle of Michigan. On the other hand, you have no reason or right to have an avocado in the middle of Michigan. Like, I'm sorry, but same thing with pineapples, same thing with mangoes and all these tropical fruits, even oranges. They're just not things we should we should have locally, and so this massive, humongous industry was born to to you know relocate food to places it shouldn't be, which spawned a lot of other industries. You know there are some industries that are solely built on on the waste and the the misuse, or got started like oranges and stuff with um like juice and all that other happy horse pucky. It's not like they're using the best oranges to make juice out of. I mean, heck, they add limestone for lime. (laughs) i'm sorry calcium they add it for calcium
0: right No, and all we're looking at here is to understand where these mistakes have happened how we as people can can make little adjustments that little bit little bit big bit Mm -hmm. that over time can affect the overall but in the meantime we're actually getting better tasting healthier food Every time we pick from the garden. Remember, if you teach a man to fish, he, or if you give a man a fish, he eats for the day. But if you teach him to garden, everybody everybody gets zucchini for the year.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could teach him to fish too. (laughs) Fish is fun.
0: You teach him to garden massive amounts of zucchini for all. So anyways, that's all I had for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did share it with a friend or on social media, if you want to support realistic sustainability, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. One. Just follow the show, give us a like, give us a follow, all those fun things you hear at the end of every show. We like those too, because it helps people find us. You can also help financially, $1, $5, $10 a month. You can go to greeningyourlife.org forward slash podcast, or just by searching Realistic Sustainability in the Anchor hosting site. Remember, all we try to do is work like a community teach each other, learn from each other. When you guys send us messages, you'd be amazed how much I learn from our conversations. But that's what it's supposed to be. A community of people learning to get better. Little bit, little bit, big bit. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Mike. And I'm Nicholas. And we will see you next week.